Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. So as as Luke mentioned, uh, we are in a series that on, on some level, yes, it's about the Sermon on the Mount. On a, on a bigger level, it's about being people who live and do what Jesus said and did. The Sermon on the Mount is the name that we give to uh, a collected teaching in the early part of Matthew's Gospels, about Matthew chapter 5 through 7, that collects a teaching that Jesus gave to those who had just started to follow him. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount because it starts out by saying that Jesus went up on a hillside and he sat down and began to teach them. And it's a large collected teaching of Jesus. And these are lessons about what it looks like to follow Jesus and to live as part of the kingdom that he's brought when he's come from heaven to earth. What's heaven's kingdom look like? Well, last Sunday, we, we started by looking at this fact that the kingdom invades our world with blessing. And on these walls around us are, are these beatitudes. It's the first part of Matthew chapter five, where over and over Jesus repeatedly says, blessed are. He says, blessed are you. When the kingdom of God arrives, he comes with what? blessing and breaks into our lives and world here. And he brings blessing to the people that society would overlook and neglect or even consider cursed. And many of the areas in our own lives where we feel like that is not a blessing, the Lord sees it and he declares a blessing over that to us and in our lives. Now this morning, we're going to be taking a closer look at how Jesus lives out his own teaching. Because if there's an umbrella thinking about what we're doing and studying and learning and growing into over this next six to nine to 12 months, whatever it turns out to be, it has to do with putting into practice Jesus's teaching. Well, Jesus did that too. Jesus didn't just arrive on earth, say a bunch of things and go back up in the elevator to heaven. He incarnates, he embodies the kingdom and he himself practices what he preaches. Amen. And so if we're going to have an interpretive lens, if we're going to understand what Jesus meant when he said what he said, we look at how he lived when he lived. Does that make sense? So we're going to move our our focus out of Matthew 5 to take a look at the Beatitudes in action a little later in Matthew's gospel and how Jesus himself was living and ministering, interacting with people. And so we might call it living it out, living it out Jesus style. Here, what does it look like when Jesus lives the Beatitudes in practice? And so we're going to see two things. We're going to look in three episodes at the end of Matthew chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12. There's a couple main things we're going to see as we do that. These three episodes show us how the good news about Jesus, the good news about Jesus, it brings us into rest. And his declaration of blessing finds a reality in rest to us. And furthermore, it overflows with blessing. So the good news about Jesus brings us into rest and it overflows out of blessing. So turn with me. If you've got your own Bible, you can look at the screen. If you don't, or if you prefer the large print edition here. And in Matthew chapter 11, we'll start in verse 25, where the Bible says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned 
and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So before we read further, let's look at what Jesus is saying about himself in these handful of sentences. Right? Because first of all, he's praying. Right? He's, he starts out, says, Jesus said, well, who is he talking to? He says, I praise you, Father. And so he, he's, he's describing this God the Father that he's talking to. He says, my Father is the Lord of heaven and earth. Do you see what that says about Jesus? He's not calling God Father in just a generic sort of sense, because in these next sentences where he says, all things have been committed to me by my father, he's talking about a special relationship. Jesus is the one and only son of the Lord of heaven and earth. And when Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by by my father, that's a profound declaration of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord of all, according to the will of God the father. Jesus is Lord of it all. And that includes that he's sovereign over revelation about God. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son himself and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. For If that sounds exclusive, yeah, there's a sense in which it is. That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying there's one way to get to know what God is really like. And that's me showing him to you. That's right. There's also a sense, though, where that is so welcoming. It is so inviting. Jesus has, by saying that, he's thrown open the reality that he reveals God the Father to human beings, to you and me. Let's think about it. How else will we know what God's really like? You can't see him. You can't touch him. You can't handle him. It's hard to have a conversation with him. Jesus, God came in the flesh and Jesus continues to hold the key for us to understand what God is really like. And do you see what he was saying in this prayer? He's saying that Jesus continues to reveal God the Father to people, but not to the intellectual experts, to what he calls the wise and learned, who are just spending their life and time and energy to try to get to know things about God intellectually. No, instead... He reveals the heart and nature of God to the humble, to those who come like little children willing to learn and change and obey. So this is probably a good place for us to pray and say, me too, Lord. Can we pray? Jesus, would you show us the Father by helping us see you accurately? Lord, we come, God, not bringing our own expertise to the table, Lord, not relying on and resting on things we even think we already know. Help us see you, Jesus, so that you can show us what you're really like, who God is, who you are, that we see you, hear you, become like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here's what he says and does. Three little episodes. We're going to read the last bit of chapter 11 and then the first part of chapter 12 here. Uh, the first part is just him continuing on in this conversation. And he says this. 
Come to me. All you who are weary and heavily burdened. And I will give you. Help me out here. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. You know, life kept going on for Jesus in the middle of this. Saying, I'll give you rest didn't mean a cessation of activity. We're going to see there's more to it than that. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. No big deal, right? Except, next verse, verse 2, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Don't they remind you of like internet trolls? It's like they're the self-appointed religious police, the arbiters. And like he's walking through the field and his disciples are snacking on some of the grain. And they're like following right there and watching everything he's doing. So if something crosses the line, they can call, blow a whistle, throw a flag, you know, and say foul. But verse three, look at this. They're, they're criticizing Jesus's followers. But it's Jesus who answers on their behalf in verse 3. It says, he answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater then the temple is here. If you'd known what these words mean, quote, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, end quote. That's from the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus continues, if you'd known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, He went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, it's a great dynamic, they asked him, quote, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? What's the punctuation at the end of that sentence? It's not a question. It's a declaration. Do you wonder if you're valuable to God? He puts an exclamation point on it. It's not a question. Then he said to the man, oh, sorry. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, no matter what day it is. Amen. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely Restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Okay, it's a mouthful, isn't it? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And then the action in these three episodes. 
it's really these three parts. The first one is Jesus saying, come to me and I will give you rest. Well, it's a specific teaching that echoes the heart of the Beatitudes. It's followed then by these two episodes that Matthew intends us to connect to Jesus's statement. You can see in chapter 12, verse one, it says at that time, he's connecting it in time and in place. And we have this section where Jesus quotes the scripture to show God's heart. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And thirdly, um, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But those latter two, they're coming in the action of Jesus's life, of him doing it and him living it. These three kind of passages that are all boom, boom, boom together, connected by Matthew, they're embodying heaven's kingdom coming. But they also contrast against the typical religious interpretations and expectations that not only were the case then, but are also the case today. In each of these sections, what Jesus is saying and doing is explicitly in contrast. Enough so that people plotted to kill him because of it. Okay, so if you if you realize, yes, it's controversial in Jesus's time. It is explicitly in contrast against the religious teachings and people's expectations. It's a reminder for us not to be surprised if Jesus says and does things that conflict with our expectations too. And so when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That is so precious. I think if there's one commodity more precious than gold, that's elusive, that we chase, and it seems to just scamper out of reach, it's genuine rest. You know, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, they just put heavy, heavy burdens on people. If, okay, if you want to please God, here's the list of all the things that you need to do. And you can tell from the way they were working it out at the beginning of chapter 12 that if you cross the line, they were quick to point out your shortcomings. You know what? That wasn't, it's not only the case back then. It's true the case here, today, in our own society and in religions around the world. Prem, in Hinduism, are you ever good enough? Can you ever say, all right, I've made it? Well, there's always something more you could be doing. Many of us live that way in our Christianity, or we, th- we have a Christianity that might look like there's five important pillars that matter. And if every day through our lives we observe these things, that that will be good enough. It's not the way Jesus intends it. He doesn't intend us to have a faith in him that's marked by actually having our faith relying on our own practices. Instead, he says, come to me. And I'll give you rest. We have another name for this. We call it the gospel. It's the good news of the kingdom. That Jesus is Lord and that he died in our place and he rose again to bring us into life eternal and acceptance with our heavenly father. And brothers and sisters, there is nothing you you and I can add to the work Jesus has already done to make ourselves better loved or more acceptable to our Heavenly Father. We, we use a... I just want this to sink in. Guys, it matters for us. This is not a gospel of working harder. 
It's an invitation to come into his rest. And the big theological word we use for this is justification. Justification. In fact, Travis talked about it a little last Sunday. He read to us from Colossians and said, this is what Jesus has done for us. And it's what you and I can't add anything to. Justification means that we enter into God's rest because we get the fruit of Jesus's obedience, not our disobedience. It means that you and I are receiving the righteousness of God in Christ. What that means is that when God is the judge and he, not the Pharisees or the Internet trolls, are evaluating our lives, what he sees is the perfection of Jesus not our shortcomings. This is good news. This means that because Jesus died and rose again, that when we throw the weight of our lives on him in faith and in trust, we enter into his rest because he said, it is finished. Brothers and sisters, this is vital. If you believe that Jesus has bought your forgiveness on the cross, then enter into his rest. Enter into his rest. Because God's rest is the fruit of justification, of God's finished work, of granting the righteousness of Christ to us by grace through faith in Jesus. This is the fruit of our faith. And let me say it another way. If our understanding of justification is only the neck up, and it hasn't actually brought us into a place of rest in our security of acceptance from God, being able to rest from our own work to know that he has finished that work, then we need to dive deeper into really receiving this good news because the the work of Jesus at the cross is to bring us into rest. This is his invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, If your efforts to follow Jesus are leaving you worn out and burnt out, you're not doing it Jesus's way. Somehow he says, come to me. Don't complete all these other things so that I'll accept you and then you can come to me. Come to me. I will give you rest. It might be helpful to take a look at these verses in in a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, where Eugene Peterson puts it in slightly different language. Here's how he says it there. Next slide. He says, are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Brothers and sisters, the solution to feeling worn out is not to get away from it all. It's to come to Jesus. And if it's your efforts to follow Jesus that are leaving you worn worn out, you don't need a break from him. You don't need a break from... He's no, what we need is... What he's describing here, walk with me. Come see how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And that that's what we get a glimpse of in these next verses in chapter 12. As we get going into this next bit, he's not just saying it, he's living it. We can see how Jesus walks in the unforced rhythms 
of grace. Come on, let's walk with him. Let's work with him. Let's see how he does it. Let's keep company with him and see what it looks like to live in his grace. Because in chapter 12, verse 1, he's on his way to church. He and his disciples are walking through the grain fields, going through the village area, and and we see him walking in the rhythm of grace. In this episode at the beginning of chapter 12, where he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's in such contrast to condemning the innocent, as he puts it in verse 7. Right? Remember, the Beatitudes are declaring these blessings of God's kingdom as it comes. And how is it expressed? How is Jesus doing it here? It's in an unforced way of bringing freedom and blessing to the people around him, whether it's friends who are hungry, that he's protecting and defending and articulating that God's heart is about meeting people's needs or in drawing their attention to the thing that matters most. I hope you caught it in verse 6 when I was reading it. Jesus shows us the main point. This is what it's all about, brothers and sisters. He says, I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. Could we not let it get too complicated? You know, there, there's an industry out there that's publishing books, making videos, uh, running radio programs, putting stuff there that can leave us feeling like it is so complicated to be a Christian. But Jesus says this. Listen, I tell you this. The one greater than the temple is here. And the economy of the Pharisees, their approach to religion and serving God is temple oriented. It's about the observances. But Jesus is greater. Jesus is who it's all about. Could we say it this way? Jesus himself is the whole point. Not just the main point. He's the whole point. Whatever else we think it's about, we've got to see this. Jesus is the whole point. The point isn't singing. We sing because we're exalting Jesus. The point isn't praying. We pray because we're seeking to connect to Jesus. The point isn't giving money. We give money because it's an expression of the heart of Jesus. Friends, we don't abstain from sex outside of marriage for the sake of having better sex within marriage. It's a picture of God's faithfulness to his bride, to the people that he's redeemed, that we're expressing and living out faithfully in our own lives. Jesus is the main point and more. He's the whole point. The one greater than the temple is here. And it's tragic when we try to serve God, obey God, or even somehow defend God. But we miss his actual presence when he's right here. I mean, Jesus is is basically saying to the Pharisees, how can you be making it about all these little rules when God himself has arrived? Let's be careful ourselves, right? It's not about our political concerns or causes. It's about Jesus. Don't miss Jesus because you're over-concerned about your causes. You know, we can do that. It's wonderful, the things our church is involved in. I 100% amen the things Luke is saying about what a blessing it is. I love being part of a church 
that is serving refugees, serving international students, serving orphans and children who don't have healthy families. Those aren't our causes. That Those aren't you know, things that we do for the sake of themselves. That's the overflow of Jesus among us. He's the one who's greater than all of it. In the same way, guys, it's not about your teenager's friends. It's not about your teenager's behavior. It's about Jesus. Don't miss Jesus because you're so busy trying to fix what your kids are doing or your relationship with your spouse or your relationship with your ex-spouse. It's about Jesus. Friends, it's also, it's not about our own preferred religious observances, things that, that we may have a legitimate revelation of, their value and worth. Nothing has more worth than Jesus himself. He's the whole point. Don't miss Jesus himself in your efforts to serve and obey God. Jesus said in this episode, he said, if you'd understood the saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And it's such a warning. We can miss what really motivates God's heart, even in our efforts to try to do what he's saying. You see that, that phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Can, oh, just to be clear, in Hosea 6.6, 6, when he's talking about sacrifice there, the word sacrifice is not primarily referring to self-denial, the sense of me not doing things I want to do. It, it's the temple-centered rituals of worship whereby we bring an offering and we go through the temple-oriented rhythm. Does that make sense? Jesus is pointing us to a rhythm of God's heart. And we, he's saying, my heart is what matters. I desire mercy. So what God desires, so vital for understanding what God commands. We can't understand God's word without a revelation of God's heart as well. Uh, Say it differently. Look, guys, we can't interpret the Bible in a way that conflicts with God's heart. That's that's a no-no. We don't want to go there. We don't want to make the Bible say something different than the heart of God as it's really revealed in Jesus. Now, I kind of mentioned this before. I just want to underline it. Please, Lord, help us not have our efforts to get to know the Lord. Just be cerebral. You know, not just be memorizing and systematizing and trying to get our heads around how it can all work. We've got to draw close to his heart. Jesus says, you've got to understand, I desire mercy, not just religious observance. Can I urge us? Let's pursue God's heart. Let us be people who are giving ourselves to know him, to know his heart, and to come alongside. You know, when we talk about wanting to know the will of God, this is this is the will of God. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so when Jesus says this, in the context of saying one greater than the temple is here, he's calling us to this. Make sure our focus is on the Lord himself. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Okay, I'm going to line up my desires with his. The question is, what does Jesus want, not what do I want? The question is, what's God's heart, not what do I feel or how do I feel about it? Amen? Okay, let's get into this third one here. Uh, Because apparently right from there, uh, the Bible says in in verse 9, it says, going on from that place, he went into their synagogues. Do you see the continuity here? Uh, Matthew is giving us continuity of time and place at that time, going into their synagogue. 
Well, he, they went into their synagogue and it says a man with a shriveled hand was there and looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, comma, they asked him. You see the they doesn't have its antecedent. Who is it who is asking him? Can't hear you, Larry, a little louder. The same Pharisees, right? The guys who were accusing earlier, it hasn't changed. They're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, perhaps because he just embarrassed them a little bit earlier with his answer. And they're they're out to get him. We see all the way through they're out to get him here. Um, But they're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. What did they pick to do that? Well, they know here's a guy that Jesus probably would have mercy on. Let's see if we can set him up for trouble. Do you see the people who are out to accuse Jesus? They already understood his priorities. They were already recognizing and thinking through what does it mean if he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. They're realizing if Jesus is here, his heart's going to go out to this guy. And we're going to try to use that to set him up for trouble. God's heart hasn't changed. You can still know Jesus's heart will go out to people with needs. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Even his enemies have an expectation that Jesus is going to want to heal this guy. Do you see that? You know, when we think and talk about the will of God, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hear this. The will of God for your life is not primarily about your career. It's not primarily about the vocation and the occupation where you spend your time. It's not even primarily about who should I marry? Should I not get married? What do I do? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It has to do with the will of God being the desires of God being outworked in our lives, in our everyday choices, priorities, and value system, no matter what job I have, no matter which kind of people are surrounding me today or in general through my life. Are you seeing that? This is Jesus living and bringing the kingdom. How does he do it? He lives out the heart of God. I desire mercy, not sacrifice to all the people he's with, regardless of which town he's in or what he's doing. Amen? Alrighty. And, and we saw this when we were reading it. People are more important than sheep. It's God's value system. Right? Are you, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? You know, it does stun some of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world how much we spend on veterinary medicine, pet food, pet beds. The heart of God sums up the whole law. It sums up the whole law. So when Jesus thinks about what does it take for us to live to please the Lord, he points to these heart issues and he keeps it really, really simple. In fact, this time when they ask him a question about the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? His answer is, look, common sense answers that one. He doesn't even go for a Bible verse on this one. He says, look, common sense is going to answer this for you. If your sheep fell into a pit, you'd pull it out. Come on, help somebody. Guys, sometimes you and I are so busy praying about whether God wants us to help somebody that we're ignoring his obvious heart in front of our face. Just put it into practice. Amen? Right. 
That's probably a pretty good place to conclude. God's heart is expressed through compassionate action. Brothers and sisters, it's always a good day to do the things that are close to the heart of God. You know, often we have other excuses and rationalizations why now isn't a good time. We want to walk in the will of God, seize the opportunities he puts right in front of us. You see Jesus living it out here? And it's rich. Soak in it. Amen. Fleece and team, I, I think, are going to come forward. Luke is going to lead us in communion. And, and as we do, I want to invite us into this rest. Because this rest that Jesus bought for us at the cross is the rest that he's living in that makes his life an overflow of blessing to the people around him. Brothers and sisters, don't let it get complicated. One greater than the temple is here. Jesus is the whole point.